0: you know, what are those uh, best practices or requirements? So for those of you, this is just a quick kind of, say, primer with respect to the uh, content security. So there are, uh, you know, a few common security requirements uh, when it comes to content production. First of all, there is the MPAA or the Motion Pictures Association of Americas, and then there is the CDSA. Uh, basically, these are, say, specific organizations that have come up with a set of security best practices. Right? Some of them are specific to the cloud, some of them are specific to the on-prem environments, etc. but none of these are, say, specific uh, standards um, as you know, some of the ones that you see like the ISO or SOC, um, Etc., you know, these are just say common best practices. So, what happens is that individual studios like Disney, the likes of Disney and Marvel, they come up with their own set of best practices that they require a service provider such as a VFX house or a post house to implement in addition to the best practices that the CDSA or MPA requires. Now in the case of MPA specifically, these set of requirements are CSA, um, Cloud Security Alliance based, and also based on the standard audit parties like the ISO, SOC, and other third party audits. you know that really begs the question then, and I kind of somewhat answered it earlier. So, is cloud more secure for my high-valued content? Well, so that's the big question out there, right? That if I am going to trust the cloud AWS environment to um, actually be able to process or create um, original content, which is say pre-released, is it secure enough? Or is it more secure than, say, uh, my um, on-premises environment? And what we see, and as uh, Keith and Eli will talk about in much more detail, I mean, aside from these two uh, quotations that you see from the different analysts, that obviously, you know, by 2020, there will be 60% fewer security incidents um, in the case of, you know, the cloud compared to the traditional data centers. And the other one being uh, 60% of enterprises that implement appropriate clouds visibility and cloud tools, which Eli will talk about in much more detail, will have one third fewer security failures. Now these are, you know, big kind of say statements. But what we will see here uh, is some of the challenges that Keith will describe in his day to day uh, with respect to content production. How relevant are these? And really, in an on premises environment, how how can you kind of say think of security? Right. If say you have a specific infrastructure within a specific part of the region, and if it's not really, if your security is not implemented at a global scale, how do you really answer that question? <clears throat> so, um, in the case of MPA, again, kind of taking it um, uh, there, you know. So what what you do is um, it is, as I said before, it's a set of guidelines that are based on ISO, the OWASP, CSA, NIST eight hundred fifty three SANS and you know a bunch of other industry best practices. Now, what you'll find very quickly is well, some of these are relevant. Some of these are not so even not even so relevant, right? In the case of say specific content production, like say OWASP, like you know specifically for web-based uh, CSA, is it cloud-based, um, not necessarily on-premises, right? So hence this need for say additional security measures that these specific studios will put in place. The, from the infrastructure side of things, um, I think. Almost all of you have seen the, um, the uh, shared security model that AWS talks about and you know, some of the third-party audits that we go through on an ongoing basis and we provide our customers with all these reports uh, through the artifacts page again. But the idea is that you know, all these industry standard audits um, or the compliances have been taken care of by AWS. So what translates into is this application security right and the cloud security guidelines and how you do that is you know there is really not a standard audit per se rather it's an assessment or an inspection right and how you do that is first of all you implement your environment with these security best practices in place that are pretty comprehensively talked about in that document that I keep referring to, as well as uh, Eli will talk about. And then you do a self-assessment. You look at your environment, you look at these controls, and you say, do I pass? Yeah, I mean, if you do pass, then you can use uh, a third party like an ISC to come in and audit your specific uh, environment as well. And it's both for the infrastructure and application assessment. So the scenario we're going to discuss, now again, content production is a, pretty gnarly big topic itself, right? How do you start from, say, on-set captures to moving the original raw content from, you know, uh, sort of say on the set to a post house facility to a VFX house to back to a post house facility to the content owner, and I can keep going on and on. Uh, But what we're gonna do here is we're going to target a specific scenario. So here, we have the studio or the content owner, uh, you know, that owns the content the rights of that content. Now, they are the the people who have the most skin in the game. If the content gets leaked out in public, they are the ones who have got the problem. That's their bread and butter. right? They are uh, talking to the third-party service providers like the VFX houses out there to provide this service on top of this original content. right? Now these VFX houses then need scale, flexibility, and cost. But that's all required at, to be running at a very highly secure environment, right? So that's where they use the AWS cloud-based render farm in this particular scenario. Now, who audits it? Who makes sure that this render farm that's being set up on AWS? Yes, AWS has gone through all these best practices, these audits and compliances, and these audit reports are available, uh, but that's for the infrastructure side but who makes sure that this actual application, which is a VFX rendering application running on top of this highly secure infrastructure platform is actually secure. That's where the ISE comes in play in this particular case, where they first of all provide a template of best practices that the VFX house can you know, align with, and then secondly, do an assessment or an auditability of that. So, these are some of the baseline compo- concepts now this is, uh, just to kind of set the expectation here, uh, this is a, a 400 level session. You know. So I would assume that most people know about these services, but basically these are sort of say utility level services that AWS platform provides you from a security perspective. So you know, from say, if you are going to try to do governance or control within your environment, how would you set that up? And there are several topics that we're gonna cover in this talk. You know about this specific topic which is governance and control. So things like identity and access management, AWS KMS, the key management service, how do you pass encryption keys back and forth, who has access to it, who sees it, et cetera, how do you manage it across these different organizations, different applications, et cetera uh e- A- amazon ec2 systems manager aws organizations how do you manage multiple entities multiple different companies you know which have nothing to do with each other except for this particular project that they are helping with vpc peering um, uh, vpc endpoints uh, on an auditability perspective aws cloud trail the capability to actually log every single activity within that how do you uh, bring uh, that or leverage that Amazon Inspector, uh, you know, to look at specific security controls from a compliance perspective. Amazon Cloud Directory. Um, and then on the monitoring side, the AWS Config, Amazon CloudWatch, and there is multiple other services you know, that you can look into uh, from a security perspective. But just to kind of set the stage here, these are some of the ingredients, if you will, right, that are going to be leveraged throughout this talk later to kind of give you, you know, kind of think of it as a challenge and a specific solution or a nugget to that challenge, right? How do you put these things in place for a architectural pattern? And again, this is not an exhaustive list by, no, by any means. This is just a set of selective best practices that we're gonna talk about. So without further ado, I'm gonna pass it over to Eli and Keith to take it further. Thank you, Swam. Hello.
1: So that was a fantastic introduction, and Usman hit on some of the core principles that we'll be talking about today. But before we start talking about architecture, before we start talking about how to best leverage services, um, AWS services uh, and controls in order to accommodate your workflow, we have to get some principles out of the way. We have to lay some additional groundwork. Um, And the first thing uh, that I need to reiterate to everyone in this room is that security must support the workflow, especially in the world of production. When working with creatives, when working with crippling deadlines, when working in an environment where there is a hard date, or a movie must launch, or a TV show must launch, or a commercial must be ready on a specific date, you have to make absolutely certain that all of the work All of the security that is put in place is done to support that high-velocity environment and to support those creative individuals who are really consuming the environment that you've put together and um, adding a a different skill set than typical engineers. Now, in order to do that, you really have to understand the workflow in depth. And Usman mentioned quite a few different companies and quite a few different flows as we we got into this. And we'll talk more about them to come. But um, when we say workflow, we mean and a part of the production process where content is created, content makes its way to another area and then it needs to be propagated out and the, folks who, the artists who create um, these campaigns need to have the ability to get their work done. We need to understand what that is, where it's happening, who is party to it, when the access is required, what type of availability is needed, so on and so forth. So there's a lot of due diligence that needs to be done before we can just start architecting a solution. Uh, And then lastly, I know the slide says that simplicity is generally the um, uh, simple solution is generally the most secure solution. We should get rid of generally and just say always. You want to create a simple workflow. You want to distill it down to its base parts to understand it. Have as few moving parts as needed. And create something that's going to be resilient, repeatable, uh, and fully understood. So in order to do that... um, You have to understand who needs to access the content as well as who may be trying to attack your content. So we're gonna introduce the concept of a trust model and a threat model. Now, if we look at the stick figure petting the dog, that's your trust model. For every process that you put together, there is an end consumer who's going to need to use the content that resides in your system. Could be an artist, could be an editor, could be someone who has review and approval capability, but that person needs to be able to access that content 100% of the time when he or she needs it. Um, We need to understand what those requirements are, and we need to put in place safeguards to ensure that they only have that minimum amount of trust. Uh, Because as much as we love to think that everyone is trustworthy and folks working on a production or working within an organization can be trusted 100% of the time, we all know that that's not the case. Accidents happen, opportunistic um, uh, 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 mistakes will occur on occasion, uh, credentials will be compromised on occasion, and it's really important to try and rein in the amount of damage that can be done in an instance where uh, an account is compromised or where you have a bad actor within your organization. On top of that, at talking about simplicity earlier, we wanna make sure that we don't overload folks with information, right? You only want those pieces of information that you need to get your job done. So understanding your trust model, understanding who is going to be doing what within the system, then making sure they have the tools to succeed while not um, uh, inundating them with noise and other process that they're not generally going to care about, really, really important. Now on the flip side of that, we have our threat model, which is the bear attacking the stick figure. (laughs) With the threat model, um, it's incredibly important to understand who those parties are, who may be trying to um, attack your organization, leak content, or do some other um, uh, malfeasance against the infrastructure that you've laid out. So with this, This is media entertainment. There have been some pretty notable uh, uh, incidents on the security front over the past couple of years. In order to establish a threat model and understand who it is you're going to be protecting against, you need to understand a few things, namely your assets, what it is you're protecting, your adversaries, who it is you're protecting against, as well as the architecture. how are you going to build resiliency and security into the uh, uh, workflow and architecture that you lay out in order to accommodate this work? On the asset side, it probably seems self-evident, but there are a lot of different assets that we can talk about in the world of media and entertainment. I'm sure a lot of you folks are here um, because you saw Disney in the title and you're probably thinking, cool reveal for an upcoming movie. That's not gonna happen. (laughs) But um, (laughs) on the asset side, uh, you do have uh, the content itself. So there can be the film, there can be the TV show, there can be the um, uh, upcoming marketing campaign that's going to launch at the Super Bowl that's worth a lot to the organization who wants to safeguard it. But then on top of it, there are other types of assets Um, There can be assets having to do with reputation. Uh, We've seen leaks in the past where some really embarrassing contract details or really embarrassing email information about very powerful people within organizations has come to light I'm not condoning that behavior, but I am saying um, you want to make sure that you, uh, you have safeguards in place, so should there be a breach of an email server or service, or should there be someone trying to attack information related to contracts, which aren't necessarily content, but are really important to studio stakeholders, that you take into account those um, possibilities, and that you design a solution that protects against it. Um, same can be said for your internal uh, users. I mentioned earlier the, uh, the account being compromised. That happens across the world in every organization. Um, Related to that, uh, we also have opportunistic type threats where you have an individual who works within a corporation or within or on a given production who has access to something that he or she may not need access to and who knows that, hey, if I copy this to a USB drive right now, no one's ever gonna know and I could show it to my friends or I could sell this to someone who's paying a bounty for a script, things like that, we have to, Um, design solutions that take those uh, uh, inevitabilities into account so we can protect against them and try and limit them where possible and in the event of an incident know how to respond and know how to make sure that it's not going to be repeated. Which brings us to architecture and making sure that the architecture that we put in place supports both the use case from the user perspective as well as the use case from who your adversaries may be. So uh, In that vein, when we're discussing architecture, we really have to understand what the workflow is and understand what this content is and how it all works. And Keith, you live and breathe this on a daily basis, so I'm gonna let you introduce this one.
2: (laughs) Okay, thanks. All right, well, as Eli had mentioned, At Disney, we care a lot about content. Uh, Content's king. We spend um, literally millions of dollars uh, investing in developing this content and also protecting the content. So uh, if we were to take a look at this example here, here's a uh, kind of a simplified version of a production workflow. And uh, we'll step through the different parts of that. So first off, we have the content creation and capture part. So that's gonna be on set with the cameras. Uh, then we're gonna move into the on location production part. Uh, So with that, we use uh, cloud-based tools to uh, share data in between uh, the different vendors. Uh, One thing to note, a good takeaway from this slide, is that um, uh, production is uh, collaboration between many hundreds or thousands of different people. So content is moving between these different groups, different vendors, um, constantly back and forth. Um, so as we move through this process, we go into post-production. This also relies uh, heavily on uh, cloud-based collaboration tools. There's a lot of uh, collaboration that goes into making a movie, a lot of content movement, and so security is uh, very important to bake in uh, from the beginning and make sure that uh, all throughout the process, uh, security is ingrained in that. So if we zoom in on part of the workflow here, so this is a, a zoom in on the, the post-production part of the workflow. Uh, again, it's, it's involving uh, many different parties, uh, more flow of content through many different systems. Uh, we're involving uh, you know, third-party people that uh, perhaps don't work for Disney or Marvel directly. They might uh, be at a visual effects house or uh, you know another post-production House, So we have to ensure that uh, Disney content is handled appropriately uh, and protect against uh, potential leaks. Um, So as Eli mentioned, there there won't be any uh, The Last Jedi uh, episode reveals or anything like that because literally our entire job is to protect that pre-release content and make sure that it gets released uh, on the release date uh, properly. So if we uh, zoom in again into a a lower-level view, um, this shows kind of a generic on-premise visual effects rendering workflow. So uh, you have the uh, artists that are working on the 3D models. Output of that model is then, um, you know, uploaded into a uh, on-premise compute farm. And this can be hundreds of different nodes um, that are all crunching on these visual effects shots. So prior to... um, AWS. Um, a, a lot of this rendering was done on premise, um, so we literally spent uh, hundreds of millions of hours, uh, you know, rendering uh, different uh, CG shots. So that brings to light uh, a couple challenges that we need to solve. Um, so that's storage space, speed, resilience, and uh, we have to bake in security with all of this. So we can't sacrifice security at any level because any breakdown of that exposes us to a potential breach of that content. So now we're gonna talk about some uh, AWS uh, branded workflows. Um,
1: you wanna take sure, that over? sure, absolutely. So yeah, as Keith mentioned, um, hundreds of millions of hours to create a CG heavy film. If you think about a Pixar movie, or you think about a Warner Brothers animation movie, it is literally um, hundreds of millions of hours of compute time that's needed on those nodes in order to create a film. There is not a data center that I know of that is controlled by a 3D, uh, by a uh, VFX render. um, uh, 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 Render vendor, which sounds ridiculous. (laughs) or by a studio that is able to accommodate that need. And as these films move towards um, 4K and UHD and eventually 8K, the challenge just um, uh, uh, expands uh, multiplicatively. So in order to meet that demand, you need to come up with a safe way to burst out to the cloud or a safe way to make these cloud native. Um, And we'll talk more in depth about some of these workflows in the future, but but looking at this, you can kind of see some of the core services that Usman introduced in the past. We are talking about um, creating a, a pure VPC environment Um, or a dedicated uh, VPC environment that's part of your VPN that is set up specifically for a given production uh, that takes into account um, various different controls including um, uh, KMS for encryption, uh, IAM roles for robust access controls having to do with the jobs, and in the world of VFX specifically, what we're gonna be talking about today, a lot of that work is actually automated by nodes. So it can be millions of nodes that are all set up the same way, kind of working the same way with a similar policy, but understanding that policy Applying it uniformly and making sure that you're not introducing any inadvertent access uh, to an environment like this is, cri- is key and critical. Another important piece of background on the solution, um, as Keith mentioned, a lot of this work historically has been done on-premise. Uh, as we move toward, and, and as a part of doing it on-premise, some of the requirements were all content needed to be encrypted at rest keys needed to be managed and controlled by the vendor or post house or um, uh, VFX shop that was working on the given piece of content. And then on top of that, all this work had to happen within an air-gapped environment. So outside of your typical data I.O. flow where the vendor receives the content, there should be no content on an internet-facing node at any given time. And I know that seems antithetical when we start talking about AWS services and the cloud, But but the beauty of the way um, AWS services uh, architecture is, uh, we're able to recreate those controls actually pretty easily in a manner that satisfies studio um, uh, requirements across the spectrum. And what we're going to do uh, is get into those in um, a little, uh, we'll get into those in more detail as we work through some of the diagrams that we have upcoming. But before we start talking about um, uh, those specific implementations, we do wanna introduce some principles of secure design. Because again, it's really, really important to understand that if you are hitting these principles and you're taking into account the workflow and these security requirements and you're applying that lens, to every um, process that you're working on, whether it's VFX rendering, dailies, or something that's not even content handling, well then you've satisfied their security requirements 99.9% of the time. So why do we say principles? Well, because a principle is, for the most part, universal, right? Um, we define a principle as those upon which systems resilient attack, uh, systems resilient against attack are built. So with this, it has to apply across the board. We're gonna talk about VFX here, but it really is everywhere. And the beauty of, uh, about applying these as principles is that they are interchangeable. If we talk about key management and implementing KMS, and we talk about IAM roles and having um, uh, uh, concepts like privilege segregation or least privilege baked into how we spin up these environments and how we do our work on a daily basis, well then, that requirement is always going to be met and it's just going to become another engineering requirement that we need to focus on uh, as we would anything else. So, with these principles, because you live and breathe it, Keith, and because you probably have way more entertaining stories about these than I do, um, I'm gonna let you introduce them and you can kind of talk through what these mean, why they're important to you, how you've observed them, where you may have seen violations in the past, and Educate us.
2: Yeah. So as Eli mentioned, um, just building security in from the very beginning is really paramount. So um, at every level, you have to integrate security and, and make use of the uh, just plethora of tools that uh, Amazon provides you to do that. Um, you can't look at security as just a, a bolt on later, or you know maybe a, a checkbox where you know it's just something that's audited and then moved on. Um, it's really important to validate uh, the security controls and ensure that they're implemented in a secure way. So when we talk about the uh, least privilege principle, um, what we're talking about is um, you know giving each user whether it's a, you know an artist or you know a PA or you know a visual effects person. Uh, the least amount of privileges within the system that they need to effectively do their job. So we don't wanna get in the way of the creative process. We wanna make sure that uh, everybody can uh, do their job effectively. And we want security to almost be passed through or you know, in the background working behind the scenes where they don't even notice it. So as we step through uh, some of these principles, um, you know, we start off with the, uh, the users or you know, the pawns here. Uh, that are described in the system, so we might want to set up some, uh, you know, IAM privileges and, uh, and roles that, uh, you know, maybe they can view assets or view a, su- a subset of the assets, um, but not have access to, you know, the entire project. So if somebody's just working on a, a particular group of shots or you know a certain portion of the movie. Uh, we want to make sure that they have access to that, but not anything outside of that, um, because that just uh, is, is a good design principle, and it really limits our uh, blast radius uh, should there be a leak. It's, it's much less valuable for you know just a couple shots or, or still frames to leak uh, versus you know the entire. Uh, fully finished movie. So as we move up the chain of privileges, you know, we have uh, you know, managers, uh, visual effects supervisors, people that are responsible for not only um, you know, groups of artists, but you know, a larger role in the project. And so um, we wanna incrementally add um, privileges and permissions to them. Uh, so that they can uh, you know, effectively work with the different groups, but still don't have you know, maximum access, which leads us to the, um, the King noted here, uh, which would be like the overall admin of the system. This is the person that can uh, create and uh, manage users, um, kind of has access to everything. We'd really wanna limit this to as few people as possible. This might be like the director, or, you know, other very high level people within the production. So that brings us to our next principle, uh, privilege separation, so. Yep, yep, so
1: Keith mentioned admins, and we think of an admin almost as a god on a given uh, uh, system. They're able to create users, they're able to create roles and policies, they're able to basically do what they want. You have latitude if you're an admin to design what is needed, depending on the administrative rights that are granted to you. Um, One of the Key core ideas behind privilege segregation that we want to get into is separating system events and activities and logging from administrative controls. Um, Amazon offer a wide variety of services that allow you to um, ship off and um, store, aggregate, and analyze um, events within your system, uh, really 24-7 knowing that those exist and knowing that you're able to set that up with a different role and have a different um, group or individual or group of individuals responsible for that outside of your administrator who's handling the day-to-day operations is critical because if an admin does or if an admin account is compromised, you don't want them to be able to go in and cover their tracks and start doing things to system logs and events that make recreating the uh, the breach impossible. So that's one way of thinking about this. Another has to do with controls that you can put around things like KMS. We talk about key management and we talk about the importance of it. Um, With some organizations, it doesn't make sense to have an individual taking care of that, right? Like if you think about nuclear launch codes and you think about the process to uh, uh, get that approved, I mean, you see it takes multiple different actors here in order to make that happen. The same can be said for um, uh, KMS and key management. If you ever need an admin to go in and start accessing content that he or she should not be able to, it should require collaboration and buy-in from multiple different stakeholders. That person should not be able to do it by his or herself. So in order to achieve these principles, there are some core services that are surprisingly easy to configure. Um, there's the AWS account structure. Now, we've been talking about a production this entire time, but when you think about a VFX house, if you think about Weta or you think about MPC or any of the very large shops that are out there, they're not just working on a specific film, they're working on multiple different films. Um, To that point, you need to make sure that each of those films is set up with the appropriate permissions for individuals to be able to conduct work on them. You don't want someone who's working on production A to be able to go in and access content and work on production B. So understanding your account structure, understanding who is going to be doing what um, on a uh, a given project, really, really important. Once you have the account set, you're able to use IAM roles to set up who is able to do that um, and what they're able to access. Again, surprisingly easy. Um, Ditto for AWS organizations and S3 bucket policies. We can go down to the asset level itself to determine who, how, where, and when content can be accessed. Um, And we're gonna walk through a few slides to show this to you. And I know this is a 400 level um, course, (laughs) and it is. Um, So this may seem rudimentary, but again, it's incredibly important to understand the chain of operations to get us to the point where we have one of these policies in place, um, and we know how it's repeatable.
2: And to add on to that, mm-hmm. like, don't underestimate the, the power of managed services. Uh, AWS provides you all the building blocks that you need, so don't reinvent the wheel if you have to. Chances are there's already a managed service that you can take advantage of to implement these.
1: Mm-hmm. Thanks, Heath. Yeah, so creating or invoking an IAM role to get an idea of who is going to be able to access a given piece of content, or what that role is going to be able to do, incredibly easy, and we have a code snippet here for the test role, trust policy. Once you've created the role, you're able to create a KMS policy to get an idea of how content is going to be encrypted and decrypted, who is going to be able to encrypt and decrypt it, and you're able to set robust controls around that to ensure that no one other than your administrator or administrators um, are able to alter this policy. So individuals who are not a part of the IAM role that is granted um, uh, uh, access to this KMS policy will not be able to see or touch or do anything with that content unless they're able to break AES-256 encryption, in which case we have a much, much larger problem, and that's a different talk.
2: And to add on that just briefly, um, up until recently you you had to enforce this through the use of bucket policies, but there's uh, actually now a default bucket encryption that you can turn on. So that's another way that it's uh, easy just to build in security right from the start so you don't have to worry about enforcing encryption because it's set on the bucket level.
1: That's wonderful and that probably makes these next couple of slides redundant. (laughs) But yeah, you're able to attach a policy to the role. So that role that we created earlier, we're able to say um, uh, what uh, privilege, uh, what um, uh, level of um, uh, access that given role has to a given uh, uh, policy. Again, incredibly simple to do, but incredibly powerful. And understanding this, and understanding it for every role through the um, uh, 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 process of your workflow, uh, it's invaluable. After you've attached the role to a policy, um, you're able to set the KMS requirement, and you can get really germane with this requirement. You can set requirements having to do with um, access, whether something can be accessed one time or multiple times, how and when the access to uh, a, a given piece of content or um, the uh, S3 bucket uh, is Um, restricted. So it could be time-based, it could be use-based, it could be combination of the two, but you're able to get incredibly granular with this permission. And as we mentioned earlier, understanding the workflow and understanding how, where, and when to apply these permissions is really important because if you set one that's overly restrictive, and you have folks coming back needing to do work or rework and they're not able to get their job done, well, if there's someone in Bangalore doing that work and your administrator of this project is US-based, you may burn an entire day or half a day of productivity where work could not get done because you had a policy that was overly restrictive. So understanding that, understanding when and where the work is going to be uh, done, really, really important.
2: Yeah, and all the granularity is is built in there. Um, As I mentioned, you can turn on the the default bucket encryption, but as well you can specify through the use of IAM policies uh, specific KMS keys, um, and then based on IAM roles and permissions uh, and whether a user even has access to check out that key, Uh, that would uh, enforce the requirement of whether they could access the bucket or not. So there's just a a ton of different ways to do this, and um, all the functionality is uh, there for you to utilize.
1: Yep, yep. And in that vein, create the restrictive KMS role. You're able to, um, with this role, we're setting a uh, policy to deny unless um, you have the uh, appropriate um, uh, user role. You can do that, um, and you can get far more granular than this. So this is a very, very small example, very rudimentary example of some powerful behavior that you're able to enforce at a system level to um, adhere to the workflow as we've been discussing and also to create systems that are gonna be resilient in that scale.
2: Well, one important point I will bring out with deny rules specifically, you can actually lock yourself out of the, um, your own bucket. So if you don't add like your root account in there, you'll basically be locked out of the bucket and have to uh, call support. So uh, be real careful with deny (laughs) rules because the last thing you want to do is stop production uh, because you've locked everybody out of the bucket.
1: Ransomware yourself. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So we talked about um, policies, IAM roles, um, KMS rules, and then um, KMS policies. This is a pretty simple diagram of how it's going to be um, done in a real world example. You have your IAM role, you have your user, you have a policy that you're able to enforce. Your users are then gonna try and access an S3 bucket to get um, that information that they need in order to get their job done. Um, Through the use of KMS, um, you're going to be able to uh, uh, make sure that they're accessing what they're, able to, what they're supposed to be able to access, which is usually important. So those five um, uh, slides that we just ran through with the walls of text and the code snippets, this is basically what it's distilled down to, and this is something that's going to be universally applicable to really any type of um, uh, role-based access control that you need to handle um, for sometimes very complex um, uh, solutions that are being rolled
2: out and what's great is all of those uh, IAM policies and KMS policies, and uh, those are all available online on the AWS site. So there's just a ton of resources there available for you. Examples, code snippets, um, check out the AWS artifact site. Um, there's, there's just a ton of resources there for you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we've men- made mention of KMS and encryption quite a bit. And there's a hard requirement in this industry to really encrypt everything. Thou shalt, in- thou shalt encrypt um, sensitive content. Um, with that, we've given a slide here to break down how KMS works and really how simple it is. Uh, we talked about how simple it is to invoke, but how it works and why it's powerful and why it's going to work. And the beauty of KMS is um, you're segregating uh, the encryption duties and encryption responsibility from your cloud provider, in this case AWS, um, and giving that power to the administrator or administrators of a given project at a given enterprise. So you're able to create those master keys, You're able to assign those roles and policies that we've discussed, and then as users try and access those master keys, they need to be authenticated. Um, We need to make sure that we verify who they are and that they should be doing this operation that they're asking to do, and then return the data keys for use. Incredibly simple, but incredibly powerful. I think there's a 100-page KMS paper that goes way more in-depth than this, but in a nutshell, if you're looking to use KMS, if you're looking to understand how, why, uh, how and why um, you have uh, that level of power over um, encryption keys, it's right here in this diagram.
2: Yeah, and this is an example of uh, one of those things where you could roll your own, but it's way easier to use a managed service, especially with this. Like it, Just running through some of the examples online with how to use KMS and encrypt content, decrypt content, uh, you just start to realize that literally, with just a few commands, um, It it does it all for you, and you should definitely leverage the managed service piece.
1: Yeah, and something like rolling your own encryption, as someone who has worked on multiple solutions in the past and systems in the past and actually assessed them, uh, I can tell you that that is a huge red flag and something that I personally would try and investigate as much as possible to see how it was set up and probably find issues with it. There's a reason most web-based traffic trusts TLS and SSL, Uh, It's resilient, it's well designed, it's there for you to use. If you try and roll your own, you're probably not gonna do it as well as the experts who have spent millions of hours creating it, putting it out there, and the hundreds of millions of hours that have been spent um, really battle testing that uh, service or that piece of technology. So if we're moving on to our next principle, um, we've got defense in depth and again, Keith, you live and breathe production. you can probably speak to this and how it works in a production setting better than I can.
2: right, so defense in depth is one of those um, you know generic um, security terms, but um, it's really important to uh, think about it in the context of a production. So, you want to make sure that there's multiple layers. Um, so, you know, if you're putting content in the cloud, um, you know, I, we require it um, to be encrypted. So, that's definitely step one. Then, on top of that, there's user access management uh, with IAM. Then, you want to ensure that your connection to the cloud is either uh, over VPN or through a direct connect, uh, private connection. So, by layering the different uh, security controls in place, you can ensure that if there's a a failure or a breach in one, there's still multiple levels uh, that they have to to breach to get at the data. So, an example of this is, um, you know, using um, AWS as a a backup option for um, onset camera raw. So um, as part of our kind of DR strategy and uh, just for resiliency of of the data, um, we came up with a workflow where we push uh, the onset uh, camera raw that shot up into AWS. And the way we've set this up is it it works so that it goes across a direct connection. So that's already a private point-to-point connection Uh, from your location into Amazon. Um, We use uh, VPC endpoints uh, for S3, so it's private traffic. Um, We use KMS uh, encryption and uh, encrypt each um, movie separately with a different encryption key. Then we control access to those encryption keys uh, with IAM users and roles. So by layering the um, different security controls, we can ensure that if uh, you know somebody breaches one thing, they can't get access to all the content. And when we work with third-party vendors and visual, visual effects houses, um, we also manage the keys very tightly and make use of uh, accounts as well as different KMS keys uh, for handling the different uh, movies. Yep. Yep. Thanks. It's a
1: brilliant introduction. Um, and yeah, to take it a step further, most of us are employed by organizations. Most of us work and do a specific job function. Um, when we think about VPC and uh, VPCs and VPC segmentation, um, it's important to ask. Who needs access to this given piece of content and how do we restrict it? Like, How do we keep this as locked down as possible? The classic example is if I work in HR in a given organization, I should not be able to look at what folks are doing in R&D and vice versa. Well, when you take that and apply it to something like a, um, a production or a media workflow, same principles apply, right? They're going to be applications, they're going, going, going to be um, uh, pieces of content, um, and they're going to be users that need to access each of these um, in different capacities. And making sure that, again, you understand who these actors are, where they are located within a given production, and how and where you're going to grant them access to given, um, their given corner of the production is incredibly important. Because we've been talking a lot about a con- um, content, we've been talking a lot about how um, content is king and we're moving towards that but accounting software, accounting process, and accounting um, uh, uh, workflows are also making their way into uh, environments like AWS. So knowing that, being cognizant of the fact that there is a larger umbrella and that there are these organizations within that umbrella um, and segmenting one from the other, incredibly important.
2: And one of the main things we see a lot when we audit uh, third parties and also uh, internal groups is... uh, Network segmentation. This is something that comes up over and over again. Um, a lot of people take the kind of adage of, you know, a, a hard exterior and, a, you know, soft middle. But um, with VPC segmentation and uh, applying other controls like knackles and things like that, you can uh, really easily implement uh, a lot of this defense and depth and, and segmentation that might normally uh, take a, a lot more uh, networking um, you know expertise to do but it's it's very easy to do in the cloud
1: yep thanks and then um, if we need to go a step further we've been talking within an organization in the prior slide how do you protect um, a piece of a production from stakeholders within that production uh, if we need to extend trust out to parties outside of the production how do you do that securely um, VPC peering is the really simple answer there. Um, this is a way of extending trust to counterparties. So if you are at production X and you need to start working with, um, I mentioned Weta earlier, or any of the other large VFX shops that are out there, you're actually able to um, sync up with them and create rules that allow you to bridge infrastructure in a means where you're, for the most part, sharing um, uh, 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 AWS infrastructure. So if, Keith, you have an S3 bucket uh, S3 buckets set up with content for an upcoming production and you need to grant access to that bucket to um, say what up? What is it you'd be looking for there? How would you go about doing that? What considerations would you take into place? And tell us how VPC
2: peering would be able to do that. Yeah, exactly. So As more and more workloads get moved into the cloud, um, and more of the vendors that we work with externally uh, on a movie uh, move infrastructure into the cloud, this actually makes it a lot easier um, and more secure for us because uh, we're using a common set of uh, infrastructure, common controls, uh, security controls that uh, we develop can easily be applied to these third-party vendors, and uh, the auditability and uh, alerting is just, it, it's really amazing. So with um, you know third-party visual effects houses that we, we might wanna uh, peer with to share content, uh, we can set up a VPC peering arrangement so that content, content can travel uh, between our secure zones and their zones without having without having to traverse uh, the internet or or go along um, other manual or insecure means.
1: Um, Yeah, exactly, and talking about that um, requirement earlier, thou shalt not share content over the public internet, it's a great way to satisfy that requirement in in a manner that's more efficient than what we've experienced and had to work with in the past. So we talked about production security and how you segment um, uh, roles and um, uh, 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 permissions within a given production. We've talked about VPC peering. What happens when you kick the content over to this vendor who now controls it and they need to start granting access to it um, in the form of sub-accounts to folks around the world. And when we think about something like VFX rendering, when you watch Transformers movie or Star Wars movie or um, any of the films that are VFX heavy, there are some shots in there that are gonna require some very specialized um, uh, artist skills. There aren't very many people in the world who are able to render water in a way that looks realistic Same for hair, same for fire. If your artist is on summer vacation in Denmark and needs access to content in order to work on it because of that crippling schedule that I talked about earlier, you need a way to get them that access securely and you need a way to do it in a manner where you are not compromising um, uh, your workflow, where you are not breaking process, where you have the same level of control that you would have if that artist was on site with you in a given facility, and the VPC subaccount is a way to do it. Um, and Keith, do you wanna jump in and start talking about the subaccount?
2: Yeah, so uh, subaccount is another example of uh, ways you're able to uh, grant access to third parties to access your content. And as Eli mentioned, um, you know, users are all over the place. Filmmaking has really turned into a, a global um, arena and uh, you know, your director might be in one place, your visual effects houses are in another, editorials in another. Uh, and the cloud actually brings them all together and makes this a lot easier. This is really like a telecommuter's dream uh, because you don't have to physically be in that location to have secure access to the content. So as uh, things uh, spread out and You know, users are all over the globe and working in different time zones and on different parts of the content, um, utilizing cloud controls and and IM policies and sub-accounts and VPC peering. Um, We can set up uh, multiple layers of access permissions that allow people to securely access the content but still have it encrypted and secure in the cloud.
1: So we're on to our last principle. I think trust reluctance. Tell us who you don't trust on these productions and why.
2: <laughs> so trust reluctance. So it's it's tough to trust everybody uh, because this is you know billion dollar content in some cases and. Uh, you know We want to respect the creative process, but we also want to secure it and make sure that uh, we 're covered for you know any sort of breaches or things like that. Nobody wants a, a headline or you know their their name in the paper or anything like that so uh, while we're very uh, reluctant to uh, give trust, um, you know, we, we know we have to do that in certain circumstances. And so what we wanna do is just ensure that our users are behaving responsibly with that content that we've entrusted to them, um, and that we monitor the activity of the system and make sure the systems that we build have built-in monitoring and notification and uh, intelligence um, to comply with the uh, security requirements for that production.
1: Exactly, and we have a nice pretty diagram to kind of um, uh, hit that home. Uh, With trust reluctance, I mentioned earlier, being able to segregate your logging and monitoring um, from the purview of administrator is incredibly important, but making sure that you have that set up and that it's set up in a way that is intelligent, where you are able to take action, Uh, and action could be the form of an alert where studio stakeholders or stakeholders on a production are told, hey, something funky is happening, you should go look at this right now. Um, Or it could be uh, an action that's taken where an account is shut down or uh, where um, permission uh, to a specific role is just revoked or the role is deleted altogether. You can build in these elegant types of solutions depending on how paranoid you need to be and depending on the access model that you define in your workflow mapping that we discussed earlier. Amazon offers some core services that you're able to use as a part of this, um, specifically CloudTrail and CloudWatch, where the trail is going to keep a a record of all activities within your uh, uh, given uh, deployment, Um, and the watch is going to be able to be used uh, to set policy on what you do when something happens. Because having a secure environment is great, but not knowing when um, activities that are happening are uh, that are suspicious, uh, not knowing about those is uh, not acceptable. Especially in an environment where we're able to build that pretty easily. So, what does this all mean? If we're going to sum this up, I know we talked a lot about VFX rendering and VFX workloads and subaccounts and IAM roles and how you do this specific, how you implement this specific um, uh, workflow uh, securely. Well. The beauty of treating these security um, uh, 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 maxims as principles is that your secure design is interchangeable. So what we have here is a mock up for what your uh, onset digital dailies review would look like if moved to a cloud provider like AWS. When looking at this, you'll see a lot of really familiar um, uh, services in here in the form of CloudTrail, IAM, K- KMS, um, CloudFront, uh, AWS S3, a couple of additional services in the form of Storage Gateway and Snowball, uh, which uh, is actually being used um, uh, in certain workflows that I know of um, as a means of getting your content from, that, uh, from uh, content creation uh, on a soundstage out to the folks who are gonna be reviewing, approving, and eventually transforming it into the content that we love.
2: Yeah, Snowball has been a real uh, lifesaver for us, especially in areas with um, spotty bandwidth connectivity. Because, um, kind of the the great thing about the cloud and also its downfall is you know it, it can all be measured through bandwidth and connectivity. So, you have access to all these wonderful services and you can do everything. But if you have you know a small pipe or your internet pipe is uh, is, is not great, then that's really going to be a poor experience for the users. So, Snowballs uh, came in. Uh, you know, in in handy uh, for uh, a location where we were shooting and we didn't have really good internet t- connectivity, but we were shooting roughly one to three terabytes a day and so they were a great way to get that up in the cloud uh, quickly and securely um, and encrypt it fully uh, the entire way.
1: Cool, yeah, so how do we achieve studio security? Well, first and foremost, reach out to the stakeholders make sure that you have buy-in from your keys of the world to know that you can take a workflow and move it into the future. Get away from the on-premise work that's been done in the past and using Sneakernet in order to get drives from point A to point B and really start leveraging uh, the future. Um, use the AWS artifact that we put together in terms of the um, burst render template that's been published. This is available to anyone um, who has an AWS account you can use it to look at the various principles that we discussed today, and kind of use that as your guiding, um, uh, uh, your guide to implement a workflow. And it'll be great if you're looking to do burst render work or render work in the cloud, but it's also applicable for really anything else that's gonna be handling sensitive content or sensitive media. Uh, And then lastly, innovate. Um, The beauty of working with Amazon is, they try and solve problems for the future, they try and Take today's challenges and turn them into tomorrow's solutions. Um, Talk with folks like Usman. Talk with your AWS account rep to tell them what you want to do, because there's a very good chance that a lot of resources actually happen internally at AWS um, that can then uh, uh, be used on your specific workflow. Um, And if you go through that process of getting the buy-in, you go through the process of um, using controls, then you go through the process of getting your solution vetted, there's no reason you can't handle some of the highest value workloads um, uh, out there in the media and entertainment space. So on that note, our presentation is done and we are gonna open the floor to two minutes and 40 seconds of questions. (laughs)